0: For almost two years now, the world has been gripped by a relentless pandemic. Millions of people have been infected and many, many others have died. It's not an equitable virus. So the death rates in Black, Indigenous and Latino Americans is three times that of whites. So that's a very grim picture. The scale and pace of this deadly virus has shown cracks in our humanity.
1: Our health system is very weak. That's because we have very limited human resource and financial resource plus basic
0: essential medicines. That's Dr. Stenard here, Siri. He's based in PNG, one of the hardest hit countries in the world. So there's a lot of myths and misconceptions about the virus and the benefit of getting a vaccine. Back in the villages and in the communities, the importance of wearing face masks or hand washing or social distancing is not really a priority. There's a lot of work that still needs to be done in terms of preparedness for wildlife ahead of us. What's become increasingly obvious is that COVID-19 threatens to leave developing countries like PNG behind. And that's putting all of us at risk.
1: COVID-19 has highlighted for a lot of us in global health and my background in malaria and neglected tropical diseases has highlighted just how inequitable healthcare and public health programs are throughout the world. So I think certainly it's been disappointing, but I wouldn't say it's been surprising.
0: When we look across the southwestern Pacific, There's no doubt that our close neighbours in PNG have felt the full brunt of this pandemic. Dr Suman Majumda is Deputy Program Director at Burnett Institute. He explains how a disease like this cripples vulnerable health systems.
2: So there've been a number of deaths in young people, a couple of 25 year olds in the past week, which is really concerning. Overall in the country, we're talking about a place that has one doctor per 20,000 people compared to one per 200 in Australia.
0: As a developing nation and as one of the most culturally diverse countries in the world, PNG has a unique set of challenges. Misinformation and scepticism can spread faster than the virus. PNG is also right on our doorstep. Which begs the question, does this island nation pose a grave threat to the health of our region? Is anyone really safe if everyone isn't safe? This is How Science Matters a Burnett Institute podcast. I'm Tracy Parrish. Throughout this series, you'll meet some of Australia's visionary scientific thinkers. You'll find out what keeps them awake at night as they grapple with a pandemic and how science is playing a leading role in shaping our response. My co-host is Professor Brendan Crabb, head of the Burnet Institute, a microbiologist, malaria researcher and one of the best minds in infectious diseases and global health. Today, the issue on everyone's mind, why can't we just shut out COVID-19? And is the only way to protect ourselves to protect others?
1: The fact that this became a pandemic highlights that we as people live in an interconnected world and we can't just barrier ourselves off in whatever country that may be from the world as people, but also as economies that can't last. Hi, my name is Professor Leanne Robinson and I'm Program Director for Health Security at the Burnett Institute. I think here in Australia, and even with our own vaccine rollout, I think we see that people have very quickly adapted to the lack of threat from COVID in Australia. And yet we're at risk of an outbreak next week, next month, even if our vaccine rollout continues to scale up and increase uptake, because we don't know for certain that there won't be some variants of concern that arise that mean our vaccines might not be as effective. We don't know that for certain yet. So it's a real issue.
0: And has the approach by Australia and other countries been just so much through a Western lens where they think this is the best way of doing it and we've had success, obviously, in Australia, so why don't you just roll it out like we do? Why isn't there a, here's the yellow brick road and this is where way you do it? But obviously that's not realistic in other countries where you've worked and lived.
1: Absolutely. And I think even the expectations of how COVID-19 would emerge and spread through many countries in our region hasn't met the expectations of many Western or developed high-income countries. So I think the actual natural extension of that, a COVID-19 vaccination rollout, is also not going to unfold in the same way for really obvious reasons in terms of the way that health systems are set up, the inaccessible areas of many countries in our region that make vaccine rollouts difficult. Even under normal situations of routine immunisation, this can be challenging. And in this situation with almost... No or very limited preparation, really, when you think about how long people have had to get used to the idea of not only a new pathogen that is a risk to them and their family, but also to the fact that we now have a vaccine against this pathogen. We still don't have one for malaria. We don't have one for other infectious diseases that they have lived with for decades, but we now have one for this very new pathogen that they have very little lived experience with. I think that presents so many challenges to a rollout.
2: So the vaccine hesitancy issue that we talk about here is just as significant in PNG or even more so, I mean, next to the logistical issues that you just mentioned, what's the biggest barrier in PNG?
1: Definitely the biggest barrier at the moment appears to be vaccine hesitancy. At least in my experience in living and working in Papua New Guinea, people trust health interventions through lived experience. Even during 2020, when many parts of the world were severely impacted by COVID-19 and people saw loved ones get incredibly sick and even die, in Papua New Guinea, this didn't eventuate the way that was supposed to or that people thought it would, even now that cases in PNG have escalated substantially and to an incredibly concerning level, I think that lived experience is still very different from a population where that occurred quickly and early on in the pandemic and that influences perceptions of risk from COVID-19, risk from the vaccination and the unknowns associated with adult vaccination programs, which are a very new thing in a setting like Papua New Guinea. So I think all of this is contributing to vaccine hesitancy against a backdrop of vastly increased access to technology and social media, which has resulted, I think, in a blurring of The sources of truth that people normally reach to. It's become very blurry for people to know whether to trust their church leader or somebody from a reputable organisation on social media with a completely opposing point of view.
0: Leanne, just picking up on that point, in Australia, we've relied so much on scientists and data analysts and epidemiologists to be at the forefront of the truth, as you call it. We've heard government many times say, trust the science, trust the data. In a country like PNG, do they trust the science? Do they trust the data?
1: Hard question. I think, yes, when the data and the science is presented in a way that can lend itself to that trust and over a period of time i still feel that the speed of the situation has contributed a lot to that inability to know where to look to for that source of truth the information coming through on social media is instant it's there it's all of the time, the information that might come through previous trusted sources, it's not so frequent. And I certainly think that p response early in the pandemic was very strong, like in many countries, in fact, it was very top down. And yet non-pharmaceutical interventions like social distancing and masks or vaccines They all require masses of people to accept them and take them on to be effective. So I think if there was one thing that probably has been slower, it would be that community level engagement and empowering of communities to have access to the science they trust rather than to just not really be sure which source of information they trust.
0: And when we talk about communities, there are so many in Papua New Guinea and they're so diverse and they do face so many difficulties. Take us inside the country. For people who have never travelled there, who have that expectation of what they think Papua New Guinea is like, it's not till you go there and you live there that you really have a true insight and then it's only just one glimpse of whether you're on the coast or in the highlands or on
1: an island. What have been your experiences? Papua New Guinea is world-renowned for being one of the most diverse countries with more than 9 million people, who still largely 80% of which live in rural areas of the country and just represent very distinctly different cultural backgrounds, belief systems and understandings.
0: Across PNG's 22 provinces the average age is just 22. For a nation of largely young people, you'll also find some really old beliefs, like sorcery and witchcraft. Like Leanne says, these beliefs sit alongside a flood of conspiracies that swirl on social media. And against this backdrop, the other real health challenge is posed by simple geography.
1: When we say that people are living in remote and rural areas of the country, they're often hours walk from a health facility. So just understanding the way the population and the health system interact as well can give some insight into just how difficult it is to get that timely messaging of the correct health information.
0: And on a personal level, has it been difficult to leave PNG because you're so used to travelling in and out of PNG, supporting the community, supporting some of the researchers, you've got close connections there. How hard was it for you to sit in Australia and watch what's happening? Oh,
1: it's been so tough at so many different levels over the course of the past year, pre COVID, I would be in PNG at least once every couple of months working with my colleagues at the IMR and the health department on numerous programs that we're working on in health. Before that, I've worked in PNG for more than 15 years and I lived there full time for eight years and raised two of our children there for the first few years of their life. And so it's been incredibly difficult, both from that work perspective, but also from a personal perspective, To deal with feeling quite useless, really, in a hands-on sense, as all of my friends and colleagues have needed to adapt, not only to the way they're living their life and the risk that COVID-19 poses to them, hearing and watching them get sick with COVID-19, but then also to the incredible burden that they And we as a team have had to undertake to continue working in this environment and not only try and continue to progress the work, but also adapt the work to include COVID-19 elements. It's been really challenging.
0: Leanne, tell us about an experience of someone that's been close to you that has had COVID-19, particularly up in PNG. Has that been a concern? And what has been the impact on their lives?
1: Yeah, it's absolutely been a concern. It's been difficulties in isolating and trying to ensure that they can protect family members from becoming infected. Many Papua New Guineans live in multi-generational households, And it's incredibly difficult to isolate properly. And so I think that's been both a real challenge and a real fear with that knowledge that it might be their elderly parents that would suffer more from this than what they might be experiencing. And then something we haven't really talked about, I think, has just been the stigma of COVID-19, of not even wanting to be known or told that they had this because of the sort of way that they would be treated within the community i think has just been so incredibly challenging and is certainly something that you know has really limited the testing rates that have been low and have underestimated for sure the actual cases and transmission that we see
2: you and i have both had lots of experience in png and we've both had experience with diseases that we understand surrounding stigma, particularly HIV, of which in Australia itself is a major driving force behind why HIV has been a problem in this country, and of course a huge problem in PNG. But stigma surrounding other things is more of a surprise to me. TB has been one I've come to understand a bit from colleagues. But COVID-2, you say stigma is significant. Where's that come from? Why is that the case? Is that something more generic about disease in general, or is it COVID-specific?
1: from what I can understand from what we've seen in PNG, is it comes from fear. If you're known to your community to have been positive or you are positive for COVID-19, are you then going to be blamed for every infection that arises in the community from that point on? And that could have some really serious ramifications for you and your family if you're seen to be the person that brought this virus into an area where previously there had been none. And even health workers who I think in some parts of the country even were fearful to go to work themselves at a certain period of time, the outbreak and the escalation of cases for fear of catching COVID-19 and then what that would mean for them and their families and all of the flow-on impacts. But I think it's also important to highlight, we've mentioned before, just how strong and robust Papua New Guineans are as well. And so people don't actually seek diagnosis and treatment generally for what might be mild or moderate respiratory symptoms. So I think it's also been a huge hurdle to overcome to try and provide appropriate education and messaging that even a mild respiratory symptom should receive a test.
2: Leanne, you speak of PNG with such affection. And as you know, I grew up there as well and know many people who have experience of PNG who feel infected by, it, which is probably the wrong expression in the COVID era. With you personally, have I read that right? Has PNG really affected you in that way? And what do you think is behind that?
1: Yeah, it absolutely has. We went to PNG for what we thought would be a two-year period of time to work on malaria studies. And that blew out to eight years. And even then was an incredibly painful process to rip off that band-aid and transition out and for me it's very hard to pinpoint I think p and has absolutely shaped who I am and the way I live my life and I think it's because I see in especially my friends and colleagues, but to be honest, even in community members that I might get the chance to interact with just once. Such a strong sense of self, of belonging, of place, such that if everything else were to crumble around them, there's a resilience and a strength that is just so inspiring to me. And yet I've obviously also seen firsthand the inequities in healthcare and access to healthcare and preventative public health strategies that also drive significant suffering and burden of diseases. And so I think it's, for me, that combination of being inspired by, but also seeing that by working together, we can do more to ensure that the best tools and strategies can be implemented in a community-led way to reduce that suffering, that really is what, I guess, has kept me so strongly tied to PNG.
0: It's fair to say all Australians have a connection to PNG that goes back almost a century... For nearly 60 years, PNG was under Australian administration before it gained sovereignty in 1975. So, we have a relationship that goes beyond governments and diplomacy. It's personal.
2: This is something we both wrestle with a lot, is this combination of PNG so capable as you've just described Australia wealthy and really willing to help. What is that right balance? The Western way is to want to go in and fix everything. We know that doesn't work in a place like Papua New Guinea, doesn't make it inappropriate to offer assistance. How's that balance working? Have we got it right? And can COVID maybe help us reshape that a bit?
1: Yeah, I think it's such an important point. And I think it's about finding equity in the partnership and being really, Clear about what each partner is bringing to the table. There are clearly strengths and weaknesses on both sides. And I think it's acknowledging those strengths and weaknesses and where the outcome can only be achieved by bringing them. Together, even something like the COVID 19 response has been PNG led from the very beginning, although obviously Australia has provided a lot of support throughout. And having a relationship, I think that means that that can continue to be offered in certain areas and upon mutual agreement that this is actually the right thing for the country.
0: You're right about the fact of Australia and others wanting to come in and solve it. Both of you are right in that way. And it's not until you go to the country. I remember my first visit to Crocopo up in East New Britain. And I met this young midwife and she was up in a clinic in a remote part. And I remember she said her first night of being on her own up in that clinic, she had a woman presented with twins, but they were breech. And the matron or whoever was supervising her was down in the main hospital, down at Nonga Hospital. And she had this little mobile phone. And I remember I'm looking at her and she's in her 20s. And I said, you must have been terrified. And she said, I was. And she said, I finally got onto somebody. And they said, just pull the legs and hope that's okay.'" And she said, in the meantime, while that was happening, she went over to a textbook, which was like a tome that you get from the library, to look up how do you deliver twins that are breached. And I just thought, it's not till you see that and you see some of the conditions that women give birth, the effects of malaria, and then you have the overlay of COVID-19. It's hard to believe that Australians aren't outraged by what is happening on our doorstep. What is the next step in helping a country like that, both overcome COVID-19 and also to assist in making a different life? What can we do?
1: I think many of us have reflected over the past months of just how difficult to challenge escalating COVID 19 cases were going to be for what is a recognised, under resourced, and understaffed health system in PNG. Yet there was also this knowledge of the resilience of the health system and of the health workers because of what you just described, which is. People may not have everything they need at their fingertips, but there's a willingness to try and do the best with what they have and a strength of character to do that. And I think that has always and will always hold P&D as a country and a health system in very strong stead with COVID and beyond, but it's being able to then fill those gaps with interventions, with tools that are wanted and needed to ensure that a young midwife doesn't face that situation alone or so unprepared in the future. Having firsthand delivered one of my boys prematurely in PNG at the labour ward of Modelon Hospital, I can absolutely attest to the resourcefulness and the inner calm that is inherent within health workers in PNG.
0: Against unfairly stacked odds, PNG's stretched health system is working hard to keep COVID-19 in check, as well as major diseases like malaria, TB and HIV. Despite sounding completely overwhelming,
1: there are some positives coming out of this experience. I'm an incredibly optimistic person, but I think that COVID really has demonstrated what can be done with the resources and the will. And I think in many settings and certainly in PNG, we've seen a response and things happen that we would never have thought could happen in that time frame for other infectious diseases. But obviously we're in this period of caution or transition where it also feels like there's the very real risk that we lose momentum, you know, with control of Malaria, TB and HIV, which have been really hard fought for in a country like PNG, strengthening the health system to be able to bring down rates of these infectious diseases. And so I feel like the period of time that we're in at the moment is about trying to sustain or maintain those gains whilst learning from COVID. Like, what can we learn from, yes, the vaccine rollout, but even from the challenges that are being experienced right now with misinformation, with low vaccine uptake. How does
2: a country like PNG get its 10 million people, not just practically vaccinated, but the actual vaccine Mm -hmm. that's going to do the job?
1: I think it comes back to that leave no one behind type approach, whether it's for COVID or whether it's for endemic diseases, that we are global citizens... As global citizens,
0: what can we do to ensure we protect everyone? Well, so far, Australia has contributed to the COVAX vaccine access facility and it's also stumped up $500 million to support PNG's vaccination rollout. By and large, Aussies seem to be in favour of supporting their Pacific neighbours in their fight against COVID 19.
2: Australia, on the face of it, looks like it's recognised that it should make contribution to these global efforts. Is it doing enough?
1: No, no. I would think we're in a fairly fortunate position where we could do more. Certainly, we are an active contributor and I think we can be proud of the support that we've shown to p and the region. But the need is great and we have the tools to actually make a difference now. The
0: balance of nationalism versus global equity or that sense of us all being a global community. When we say no one's safe until everyone is safe, I sense that some countries, particularly the big powerhouses of the United States and and GB and places like that, are quite happy to look to help developing countries once their communities are safe. And then they'll realise no one else is safe until they're safe. Is that how you see it playing out?
1: Yeah, look, I think so. Unfortunately, I think many of these countries, and probably including a decent proportion of our own, will still feel that there's a self-interest element that needs to be prioritised alongside a development assistance program. It's great to have that knowledge that 83% of Australians would support vaccines going to P and G, But I guess the flip side or the devil's advocate there would be that we're in that position where we can. And if we weren't, if we had community transmission, would it be that high? I mean, you and I would like to think it would be that high, but would it? So I think that's perhaps the factor in the US and the UK that is also influencing that approach. And
0: when you talk about the capacity of the country to roll out the vaccines. I think they've got something like 500 doctors and 4,000 nurses for 9 million people. How's that even possible?
1: Yeah, it's possible because of, I think, the very strong community based programs that can and are being launched associated with the vaccine rollout. But it will take time. We're seeing it takes time here in Australia as well. But I think it will take time in PNG, not only because of that very real operational constraint of the health system and the logistics of of getting vaccines into arms, but also because of that gradual process of acceptance that is going to need to occur throughout that program. And there are some fabulous COVID-19 vaccine champions that are becoming incredibly vocal throughout the country now. Professor William Pommett, Dr Moses Leman really close colleagues at PNGIMR, Dr Gary Now at Port Moresby General Hospital, WHO and religious leaders, I think are doing a fantastic job of really trying to lead, but it's difficult. And they are encountering real difficulties, especially on social media, even in their role to do that. So I think it will be with time.
0: And as a scientist, sometimes you know too much. What keeps you up at night?
1: this. And I think it's probably really back to that point of being fearful of how can we manage COVID while also not losing so many of the gains in health systems and health programs for other infectious diseases. How can it be managed in such a way that there's not other public health catastrophes in addition to try and minimise that dual burden I think I'm I'm not actually very good at change, and yet we've had to adapt to just constant change. Like you can't even plan anything really. So I think if there was one truly honest answer, it's probably that. It's like how long are we going to have to keep being like so okay with uncertainty around everything?
0: And just finally, Leanne, I like to always leave on a positive note. We often think anything is possible. What is possible?
1: I think that science can deliver effective public health interventions with the right support at both ends of the spectrum, the right financial and political support, but then ultimately needs that community level understanding and support. It's highlighting the possibilities with effective tools and effective community engagement and showing us how we just have to be doing those things at the same time in order to actually achieve impact.
0: As one of our closest neighbours and strategic partners, P&G offers a stark example of how it's in all of our interests to make sure that no country collapses under the weight of fragile medical systems. In Australia, it's in our national interest to keep everyone safe so that we can all be safe. How Science Matters was produced by written and recorded. This is a Burnett Institute podcast. For over 30 years, we've been at the forefront of infectious disease research, public health and national health security. COVID-19 is a complex global health challenge. So join us in the fight against the pandemic and help us to remind everyone how science matters. If you like this episode, join Brendan and I for our next instalment, Everyone's an Epidemiologist. To hear more, search for How Science Matters on the Bernard Institute website or wherever you get your podcasts. And please share this episode with two friends or more. If they're new to podcasts, show them how to follow our show. We want this podcast to spread like a virus, but in a good way. I'm Tracy Parrish. See you next time.
2: This podcast series was recorded during June and July 2021. In this evolving pandemic, please search for the latest official coronavirus advice in your area.